Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. What do I got for you today? We have Ethiopia finishing the Renaissance Dam and all the great things that are going to come from that. We have Ukraine looking like it's coming into the crosshairs of people who don't consent to giving hundreds of billions of dollars to them. And then we have the big story, a massive lithium deposit being found between Oregon and Nevada. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have Kamala Harris uh, adding herself to the list of people saying that Russia has already been defeated. Uh, okay, buddy, we're, we're going to come back to all of those people when the war is over and we do the reflections episode. But it it's very strange because at, at this point, this is what number three we had Kamala. Then we had before that was Blinken, and before that it was. Uh, Lloyd Austin, and then before that, it was uh, Millie. Well, shoot, if Mi- I could have sworn that Russia had already lost back in March when Millie said it, and then back in what June when Lloyd Austin said it, and July when uh, when Blinken said it, or was it August when Blinken said it, and now here we are in September and Kamala saying it. Well, if Russia's already lost, well, sh- they sure have been fighting for quite some time after losing the war. <laughs> I mean, it's it's September now, the middle of September. So if we count backwards, the August, July, June, May, April. Jeez, that's five months at a bare minimum that Russia has lost the war and it's still going on. I mean, what's, what's going on? But they're, they're obviously lying. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll get into how this plays into the new sort of new narrative that they're trying to craft. They don't know what they want to do yet. They're, they're torn. And we'll get into how exactly they're torn. Uh, but keep in mind that they're the hardliners and then there's the China hardliners who don't want us to be fighting war with Russia. They're both wrong, but, you know, they're the factions at play here. We have oil prices at $95 a barrel. Uh, what a great time it would be, you know, to be one of those energy independent countries. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's still annoying, you know, we, we were energy independent. And then all the people who advocate for American energy independence completely missed the mark. Uh, they say we, we could have, if we were energy independent, we could have supplied all that energy and gas to Europe so that Russia wouldn't profit. No, Goofy. No, Goofy. It's not about the Europeans. The the Russians would have profited anyway from the rise in the prices. It's about Americans. We wouldn't be paying four, five, six, seven, eight dollars a gallon. That's what it's about. Us being an energy exporting nation means that we would benefit from the rise in the prices. Not we're going to deny profits to another country. You have no power to do that. You have no power to do that. It's... But this is what happens when you derive your legitimacy from foreign affairs, which is a problem that plagues the entirety of the American political thought and discussion. At the current moment in time, anyway, and the second American Revolution seems to be alive and well, and we'll, 
<laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, we have the actually, you know what? I'll jump. I'll just jump to it right now because New York has turned against mass immigration. They've turned against it. Uh, Eric Adams, the mayor, had a sort of town hall meeting where he was talking about how this is going to affect all of our communities. The the city that we once knew is going to be gone. We don't have the resources to support all these people. <clears throat> Staten Island is saying send them to Bronx. Bronx is saying send them to Queens. Queens is saying send them to Manhattan. Or, well, he, he probably said it in a different order, but no. Um, but, wow. Who would have thought in the current day that New York City, of all places, would be turning against it? Immigration, illegal immigration. And it's not even just him and the, the city council. It's the constituency. Just, what was it? Either today or yesterday. I think it was today, but it could have been yesterday. Um, there was a video of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's talking, she's literally outside of a hotel where they were housing a bunch of illegal immigrants, giving up a, a sort of press briefing type thing where it was it was sort of one of those things where the press catch you on the street in a, a controlled manner because it was everything was barricaded and you know you weren't allowed to get over there so one of those controlled uh oh we gonna interview on the street type things and while she, as she's standing there saying that we're gonna give work rides and more amenities and more resources to the illegal immigrants and now she's making the case that they're not able to work and so that's why there's such a strain on our resources not the fact that you have all these additional people who just showed up one day but i'll digress as she's doing all that you have this crowd of people screaming at the top of their lungs close the border close the border send them back <laughs> Wow, I never thought I'd see the day. What? New York is ours. <laughs> New York is ours. <laughs> oh, a lot of people aren't ready for the second American Revolution, but you know what I am, and and that's and that's really telling. Cause when when New York and Chicago are switching sides on the illegal immigration debate, you know you're in the middle of the second American Revolution. And it's it's not the war yet. I don't know. But it's definitely the revolution. <laughs> and, and I brought up Chicago. The Chicago citizens have had multiple little town halls where they show up and they complain about how all these illegal immigrants are being housed and being given resources that they themselves don't get. And in Chicago in particular, the primary demographic represented at those meetings are black people. So not only are you talking... Democrats defecting to the anti-immigration, but blacks in specific. It's a political revolution, I tell you. The second American revolution is upon us, ladies and gentlemen. And on the other side of it, what, well, these forces have been unleashed now. There's not, you're not going to control them anymore. And all, I can tell you exactly where it's going to end. There will be no more allies on the other side of this, and there's not going to be any enemies. There will only be America and her many trade partners because that's where this is going to end. Now, it, it might seem like a jump to say that from right now, but you just watch how these things develop. 
because Americans are they're really tired about being told who their enemy is and who they have to go fight, and they're really tired of being told who they have to defend. Uh, that that shit's getting old and fast, and boy, I can't wait to see it. But we'll move on. We have the Italian island of Lampedusa. Uh, you would not believe how much I struggled to remember that name uh, until I wrote it down. But while we're still on the subject of illegal immigration, the island of Lampedusa, a place with a population of 6,000 people, has recently received 7,000 migrants in a single day. <coughs> 7,000. So literally double your population, except, well, more than double your population, except now it's people who don't live there being dropped off at your doorstep. And who's going to take care of these people? Oh, us? This tiny island that was really not necessarily built for this? Uh, okay, so this is going to go incredibly well. And by well, I mean it's going to be a disaster if it's not dealt with quickly. So we have more illegal immigration, and I believe that the Europeans are going to turn against this illegal immigration thing as well. Uh, the French in particular. Oh boy, the French. Uh, we'll see about those Brit. We'll see about those Brits, though. But as I was going through this story, and there was many, many comparisons, and obviously the comparison eventually came up that what they got in this single instant of seven, six thousand migrants being delivered during a day is what the U.S. gets on a daily basis. We we receive uh, literally that many every day, six to seven thousand, with this open border policy, and. So on top of the realization that we are not the same as the Europeans, uh, that layered on top of the other realization that these artificial problems would, are designed to to give the perception that we're all in this together, that we're all in the same boat, when really the United States and Europe are two completely separate entities. We might both be Western, but uh, this whole Western solidarity thing is contrived from artificial problems that create artificial unities we are not the same. And on the other side of the American Revolution, you will see that. America is going to go its own way. The Europeans are resource poor, with the exception of Russia. The United States is resource rich. Europe is next door to all the problems in the world. The United States is far away. It's We're just two separate entities. And I think that even in the midst of all this, all these solidarities and all these false commonalities, it's still, the differences are still going to shine through to the point where America is going to go its own way. And I can't wait for that. I cannot wait for the day that America is a nation at peace again and the day when we're not babysitting all these, uh, what ultimately amounts to the, the most worthless gang of negroids to have walked the surface of the earth. Uh, like I covered it in the last topic uh, of our last show last week where we went over the numbers between what we've given in Ukraine to what the Europeans have given in Ukraine. And it's just not even close like that council on foreign relations article that I went over and mind you, they, uh, they ran with the numbers that we've only given Ukraine $75 billion in aid, less than a third of the actual total. And the Europeans still couldn't compete. And this is their security environment, their neighborhood, their backyard, and they have nothing to give? 
why do I have to defend these people? Why should I? Uh, and the answer is that I don't have to defend these people, and I shouldn't. If it's not that important for you, it's not that important for me. And quite frankly, it has always been more important for you than it has for me. I can't wait until this illusion that America has to be involved is broken and people see just how not involved the United States has to be. I can't wait for that day. And every day that day gets closer. It's it's just so thrilling, you know, it's so magnificent. But good things take time, good things take time. And I still have to wait, but it's coming, it's coming. Uh, we have this, this prisoner swap between the US and Iran. A deal which, for whatever reason, also included the unfreezing of $6 billion in Iranian assets. Now, you've if you've been a long enough time listener to me and you saw my episode, well, you saw, well, you listened to my episodes on Afghanistan, I am f- completely in favor of giving people their assets and unfreezing them. We shouldn't do that. I'm opposed to sanctions. That's literally cancel culture as a foreign policy. It's never going to end well. And it's toxic and unproductive. I'm completely on board unfreezing other people's assets. It's their money, right? I wouldn't appreciate having my shit frozen. Don't freeze theirs. And and then don't freeze their assets and then complain that they're hostile to you. Like, it's so backwards. But why are you unfreezing them as a part of what's supposed to be a prisoner swap deal? Just swap the prisoners. Like, and again, I'm not opposed to unfreezing their assets. It's just, this is not the time and place to do that. You unfreeze their assets as a part of a separate deal. We could have gotten sort of a, a, a rudimentary, bare bones trade deal with the Iranians. Like, let's say that this administration really just didn't feel like drilling for oil. Okay, well, buy it from Iran. In exchange for unfreezing $6 billion of your assets, you're going to give us oil at a at a very good price point. Something, oh, I don't know, something below $95 a barrel, you know, maybe 70, 75. You know, we, we could have done that. We could have done that. And then when people went to the pump and saw that it was a dollar less or half a dollar less or Oh my goodness, anything helps. <laughs> we would have said, okay, well, that was a good foreign policy decision. We should still produce our own oil, but you did something useful. We could have done something useful with that. Instead, we gave it away for free over a prisoner swap deal, which provides the image that you basically bribed them with $6 billion in order to get the prisoner swap deal to go, uh, to go along in the first place. Missed opportunity. And I, that's just the theme of American foreign policy, missed opportunity after missed opportunity. We have a General Milley admitting, uh, and this is, mind you, after saying that Russia had already lost months ago. We have General Milley admitting <laughs> that the offensive isn't going as planned. It's going to be a slow grind, you guys. It's going to be a long war. And he also admitted in a separate interview that the China balloon thing was not a spy balloon, which, granted, we could have shot down either way. Like, it's entering our airspace. Identify yourself. It's incapable of identifying itself. Just shoot it down. With a bullet, not a missile. It's like, come on, common sense here. Like, because we didn't know what it was. If we didn't know what it was, 
shoot it down. But if you knew what it was, and you knew it was a weather balloon, why didn't you just fucking say it? Like, come on. I can't stand these people. And then you have the entire country getting whipped up into a frenzy, like, oh, and now you have people who want to fearmonger about China using the balloon incident as some sort of evidence to how China's a threat to the United States. Oh, you remember all the balloon? Oh, trash. <laughs> but let's say that it was a, a spy balloon. Shoot it down. If it was a weather balloon, and you knew it was a weather balloon, why didn't you say it? Why? Especially once people picked up on it. Why didn't you say it was a weather balloon? Why Why is it that when the news caught wind of it and then started putting it on blast, why didn't you say it's a weather balloon? There's no need to panic. Instead of allowing us to go through the frenzy. Oh, that's right. They want to manufacture consent for a war. So now, at this point, it really doesn't matter what they say. Because everyone's latched onto the idea that it was a spy balloon. But this guy, he's talking about Ukraine's offensive is going to be a slow grind. But I, I thought Russia had already lost. I thought they've already been defeated. Strategically. Militarily. <laughs> I thought they were already defeated on the battlefield. I swear the Reflections episode is going to be a, a true masterpiece. True masterpiece. But before that, we have, we're going to have a, our anniversary next week, so stay tuned for that one. I do have a wonderful segment for that one, which I honestly wasn't planned. Uh, it was sort of just a writing project that I ended up doing to put my thoughts on paper. And now, I think you'll really enjoy it. So, stay tuned for that one next week for the anniversary episode. The third anniversary episode. So we have that. We have major flooding in Libya after two dams were damaged by heavy rain. Uh, so I, I, I'm assuming that they didn't open up the locks or they didn't release the pressure fast enough. Maybe they thought the rain was going to stop before it did. Or maybe they, un they overestimated the structural integrity of the dams and they cracked and partially broke in certain places. And there was a lot of flooding. And as of now, over 3,000 people are confirmed dead. The article I saw said 3,300, uh, and then there's a lot of people missing. So for now, 3,000 confirmed kills, and it's probably going to be, uh, if we're honest, we're probably going to round that up by an additional 1,000 by the time that the final count comes in. So this is a, a real tragedy that has happened. And this is... This is the damage of war. Because you got to think, would this dam have been, you know, sort of left in the back in the back burner had they not been fighting a civil war? Had they not been fighting themselves, would they have had the time to fix and repair the dam? Or maybe it would have just happened anyway because the dam was being well-maintained. These are the things that come up, well, that, that come to mind when you're dealing with a country that's at war especially when it's a civil war and the resources can't be marshaled in the same way that you could if it was sort of an international war where you're fighting someone else and you're able to use everything that you have, but you're fighting yourself. So now the logistics and the supply chains and the wealth, and it, Libya wasn't exactly the wealthiest place on earth. They have oil, so they could have rebuilt the dam and re repaired it. They could have overseen uh, the maintenance of it such that it didn't break. But this is the damage of war. And this is one of the things that I was afraid was going to happen 
to the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia during Ethiopia's civil war. So it's a, it's a bit of a strange irony that I'm covering both of these topics in the same episode now. Uh, the, the dam here in Libya, as well as the dam in Ethiopia, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But yeah, this is a real tragedy. A real tragedy indeed. But that is all I have for the rapid fire. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, folks, let's get into the let's get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start it off with the Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, which Ethiopia has just finished. Now, this dam is slated to supply six gigawatts of electric power, which will now be generated in Ethiopia. And that's a lot of power. And it's also going to supply electricity to Sedan, who was in on the deal while the dam was being constructed and while they were filling up the locks and the reservoirs of water in the dam. Because uh, that's what they've been doing for the past like year and a half, filling up the reservoirs. So they've been doing that. E- e- Egypt was really concerned about that and the water supply. And now that I think about it, the completion of this dam without any Egyptian interference here, uh, and as well as the fact that they both joined BRICS at the same time, I think that potential crisis has now passed. I think that the, the, the Nile question has been resolved, and it's not going to be war. Peace through development is what appears to be on the table. Ethiopia has not sort of well, I say Ethiopia. Egypt has not intervened to prevent the construction of the dam. They ha- they haven't had this mass humanitarian crisis from Ethiopia filling up the locks in the dam and the reservoirs at a, at a speed that would you know deprive Egypt from too much water. And now the dam is complete. And now places like Sudan and Eritrea and Somalia are going to be supplied with electricity. Of course, the Ethiopians are going to be supplied with that electricity as well, and the spare electricity will be sold to their neighbors so that a new source of wealth and revenue has now been generated for the Ethiopian state to to use for development projects of their choosing. This is a massive, massive development, especially in light of the, the Egypt stuff, because my main fear, my main concern during the Ethiopian Civil War was that some faction in that war, because it got messy for a little bit, my concern was that someone was going to sabotage the dam or that Ethi- uh, that I keep trying to say Ethiopia when I'm saying Egypt. <clears throat> some faction in Ethiopia was going to sabotage the dam. I was concerned that Egypt might come in and try to sabotage the dam. Uh, I was talking about the logistics of how they would have to go through Sudan to do that. And Sudan isn't exactly a stable country. And you see the the chaos in Sudan right now. And even when that broke out, I'm like, okay, well, now the dam is in trouble again. <laughs> because this time, instead of a, a civil war in Ethiopia, now it's a civil war in Sudan. And conflict can spill out. And you see all these coups uh, across the Sahel, the, the entire this belt running from Sudan all the way to uh, the Ivory Coast. And it's like, geez. This place just can't catch a break. But here we are. 
There's no uh, there's no Egyptian intervention. There was no rogue actors in Ethiopia or Sudan who sabotaged the dam. The reservoirs have been filled up. No humanitarian crisis in Egypt. The Nile still flows. And now, electricity has been brought to the Horn of Africa in a major way. This is a massive positive positive development for Africa, specifically the Horn of Africa. This is huge. This is huge. And it's clear and it, they don't need oil for this. Ethiopia doesn't need oil for this. It's a massive, it's a dam, it's hydroelectric. So they can now begin development projects that would otherwise have required a greater source of electricity. They can now start doing that right now. They can start sort of maybe more intensive mining operations for the undoubted, uh, the undoubted mineral wealth within Ethiopia. Mountains tend to be rich in resources. Like that's, that's just something I've come to, come to notice. And Ethiopia is a very mountainous country. So we can probably expect more energy intensive mining operations in Ethiopia, which may even end up enabling them to extract more valuable resources and minerals. And then they'll have the electricity to supply refineries, mineral refineries with the power necessary to do the energy intensive work of refining these metals and minerals and materials that they have into usable goods, value added goods. And then you have an even greater source of wealth and revenue, you have more jobs and more opportunities. This dam is revolutionary, it really is a renaissance dam in Ethiopia, and it's done against all the odds and granted the odds weren't exactly the highest but there was real danger that something could happen and they've made it through this dam is going to revolutionize the horn of africa it's going to revolutionize east africa and it's even going to reach down perhaps perhaps it's this is a you have to remember africa is a really really big place some of this electricity is going to make its way into the states of the East African Federation. Some of, this, some of this electricity is going to make its way down there. And then those are going to have derivative effects for everyone else. Sudan, once it's done with its civil war, they were in on the deal from the start, or a lot earlier than a lot of other countries. They're locked in. They're going to get cheap electricity. So once they're done fighting, they'll have electricity for development projects of their choosing as well if i'm not mistaken sudan has oil and they, they they have they have stuff all right they have stuff at a bare minimum they have the nile river uh, the blue nile and the white nile merging into what we call the nile so they can have potentially mechanized farming methods uh, for greater food production this is revolutionary this is truly revolutionary and you know it's nice to see. It's nice to see good news. It, it really is. Especially in a place that's just been riddled with conflict and trouble for so long. It's nice to see, oh, wow, there's some good news coming out of it. Just like when the Middle East had that wave of peace deals sort of just spring up and it's like, oh, wow, who would have thought the Middle East would have this sort of diplomatic revolution where they're not going to be killing each other anymore? It's one of those things where 
it just five, 10 years ago, you would, you would have never seen coming or, and certainly not this fast. Like we saw Iran becoming the dominant power of the Middle East and everyone sort of shifting and realigning themselves to that reality. But then you have China coming in and brokering that deal. To normalize completely relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran, you had Saudi Arabia allowing Iranian delegates to uh, come to Saudi Arabia in person to attend and take their seats at the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. It's, and then you had Syria being brought back into the Arab League. All these positive developments. I think that this region, the the sort of north, the Horn of Africa, Northeast Africa, you know, Egypt and whatnot, combined with the Middle East, I think that this region is going to have one hell of a century. I think, because a lot of people think that it's it's going to be the new American century or it's going to be the Asian century. No one bothers to talk about the Europeans or, or Latin America. But I think it's going to be the Middle Eastern century. Because when you look at the demographics, uh, and we talked about this uh, a few months ago, look at the demographics. The, the East Asia, while they're going to be rich, they're also going to be in demographic decline. Europe is going to go back to the bottom of the pecking order, it, like they were in the pre-Columbus era of geopolitics, which is uh, like the majority of human history with the United States and Russia being the key outliers in that equation. In Africa, well, they're gonna have a, a better go at it than they did certainly in the, the 19th century, the 1800s and then and the 1900s for uh, the first half of the 1900s anyway. I think we're looking at the Middle East doing spectacularly. I think that as a, when you're talking about regions specifically, the Middle East is gonna have the best time out of all. And I say Middle East, but I'm talking not just about, you know, the Middle East that we think of, Arabia, Turkey, Iran, but Pakistan. I think the Middle East plus the Northeast Africa and the Horn of Africa, they're going to have a great time. And we're seeing the, the, the baseline of that right now, the end of this era of conflict that has plagued them. And then you're going to start to see these these projects like the dam that Ethiopia just built, the Renaissance Dam, the, the Belt and Road, the Russian energy infrastructure and security architecture, uh, the, the, all these peace deals and the end of the fighting and the removal of U.S. influence, quite frankly, all that's going to come together. That, along with these international organizations where you have these overlapping memberships, it's going to create a security architecture that's going to form the basis of rapid development and rapid rapid rise in prosperity and it's it's going to be unlike anything we've seen out of this region or anything we've come at ugh, anything we've come to expect out of this region it's going to be like 900 AD when when the arabs sort of just popped up onto the scene and then you had the first caliphate we're going to be looking at something like that now, the Europeans aren't going to be happy about that. <laughs> uh, they'll, they'll find their way, probably, maybe, don't quote me. But uh, it's not going to be a problem for us. We're going to be happy. We're going to be 
we in America are going to be upset that we don't have direct lines of access to do trade with the Middle East. That's what we're going to be concerned about. Not, oh no, they're a new threat to the United States. That era of American geopolitics is coming to an end so fast and I can't, I am so happy to see it go. Because all these great trends are happening and it's just a matter of them, it's just a matter of getting to the other side. Where America's the great trading nation, where the, the conflicts, the endless wars end. And you have this new order that just makes sense now unfortunately again for the europeans they're going to be at the very bottom of that order but places like ethiopia egypt arabia iran china and india russia united states even latin america everyone else is going to be doing really well and the europeans are gonna i i i say that they're gonna be at the bottom and as a region they will be for a number of reasons uh demographics being at the top of the list but certain states are going to do very well. Britain, if it ever commits to the Brexit, is going to do very well. They're an island nation. They have to trade. They have to trade. It's just integral to their being. France, Spain, Portugal, they're on the west coast of Europe. They can interface with the wider world if they choose to do so. Italy is smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. They have trade with <laughs> with the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe. They will be the middlemen of the European powers in this new age, right along, because a lot of pipelines that come out from North Africa and from the Middle East are going to go through Italy before they get to North Northern Europe. And that's going to be huge for Italy. It's going to be like the spice trade, except it's energy and perhaps even cheap manufacturers from East Asia, uh, assuming that Italy stays in the Belt and Road, because they're, they're, they're toying with the idea of leaving the Belt and Road right now. So that aspect might be taken away. But yeah, you're going to, we're going to see all these countries and Ethiopia, e Ethiopia, Egypt, uh, perhaps even the East African Federation, they're going to be having this incredible time developing. And one country's wealth is through trade and through mutually beneficial deals going to influence and further another country's wealth. And it's going to be this chain reaction of wealth creation. A chain reaction of wealth creation from really rich and wealthy countries when you look at the resources available to them. And again, Ethiopia is mineral rich and they're going to be able to access more energy intensive methods of extracting and then refining those goods. Ethiopia is going to have a great time. And the, the finishing of this dam is just the start. Just the start. And we'll, we'll see where the Europeans fit in because some countries are going to do better than others. Again, the West European states, they can do trade with the world. I see Spain being a, made, a potential gas hub for North African gas and oil coming into Europe as well as sort of alternative route to Italy. Uh, we'll see if they're, we'll see if they go along with that. We'll see if they go along with that or if they do something self-destructive. For the time being, that's what it looks like they might do. But again, gotta make sure, gotta watch and see if they don't do something that completely sabotages that like Italy's doing right now, trying to leave the Belt and Road.
No, you have the best of both worlds. Stay your goofy ass where you are right now and just reap the rewards. What's China going to do to you? You're in the middle of the Mediterranean. <laughs> like, like, come on now. <clears throat> At a certain point, common sense has to, has to reign, has to rule the day. And I think common sense is coming back in a big way. And smart countries in Europe are going to be able to, they're going to be able to get themselves a very nice and comfortable place in that new order. Especially countries like Italy, Spain, and even Greece, who have really advantageous geographies located next to these areas that are going to be, they're gonna, that are going to be developing and getting wealthier at a rather rapid pace. Because Africa still has good demographics. So if you pair the good demographics to their rich, the richness of African resources and the economic development enabled by Chinese and Russian and even Japanese projects and development projects. If you're in the Mediterranean, you're good. You're good, especially Italy, Spain, and Greece. But will they get the politics right? That's, that's the key. Will they get the deal or are they going to sit there and go, we're not going to make a deal with this authoritarian leader. <laughs> that's going to be the killer. That's going to be an absolute killer. That, that stuff has to go out the window. It's, it's slowly but surely leaving America. It's, and it's taking its sweet time leaving America. But my goodness, if they don't get the politics right, they're going to miss out on so much. They're gonna, oh, it's going to be such a missed opportunity especially if Italy's the one that drops the ball on that. Like, there's no reason why Italy should not have a great and magnificent time in this new multipolar world as the middlemen between Europe and literally everyone else from the southern axis. There's no reason, especially since Italy's going to be unified this time around instead of a series of city-states. Like, there are better, there are worse places to be, like Denmark. <laughs> but yeah, that, that, this this damn, it, it's been a long time coming. It's been quite the tumultuous road getting here. But now that we're here and the dam is finished, you have this massive uh, branching field of opportunity. And it's, it's again, such a bright and positive development that I think is going to be just the beginning. I think Ethiopia is going to have a great time in the 21st century. I really do. Alrighty, but now we'll get into our second topic for today, which is Ukraine in doubt. Finally, finally. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, for the last year or a year and a half, we've been inundated with Ukraine. Ukraine needs this. And Ukraine needs that. And Ukraine is fighting for freedom and democracy. And we stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Remember that? Remember that one? Is, as long as it takes? I wonder where that one went. Uh, but never mind the fact that Ukraine has banned both freedom and, and democracy. <laughs> well, they, they banned opposition parties, banned opposition media. And they banned religious freedom. They've been cracking down on Orthodox Church, Orthodox Christians. 
And then they banned democracy, saying that we're not going to have elections until after the war. Well, okay. So there goes freedom and democracy. But never mind that. Never mind that. What do I mean by Ukraine coming in doubt? They're in doubt. What do I mean by that? I mean that for the first time in a while, we are having open conflict between U.S. interests and Ukrainian interests. Because up until now, uh, the U.S. Uh, quote-unquote interest has been whatever the hell the Ukrainians wanted. Like, they, they, we've given these guys everything, and we've just lionized it. I mean, we've treated Zelensky in particular like the second coming of Jesus. I mean, Winston Churchill, <laughs> who may be a hero of Britain, but not the United States. I mean, that guy dragged us, he went out of his way to drag us into the Second World War, and FDR wasn't much better in that regard. So that's not exactly a, a hero of the United States, someone who drags you into their war. So, But they, he is a hero of Britain. I'll give him that. He is a hero of Britain. But, yeah, they, they brought this guy in to speak at a joint session of Congress. They lionized this guy. They gave him wall-to-wall coverage. He's man of the year. And they've lionized him. They've lionized Ukraine. And straight up slandered anyone who didn't go along with that narrative. Uh, if you didn't go along with it, you were Putin puppets, Putin sympathizers, appeasers of an authoritarian regime, Russian bots, the, the whole shebang. But very recently, very, very recently, we've started to see a break from that Ukraine absolutist narrative, along with points of contention popping up in this relationship. And not just between us uh, and Ukraine, the U.S. and Ukraine, but between Ukraine and the EU. Just last week, Ukraine threatened the EU with a massive wave of refugees if the EU doesn't maintain its current level of support for Ukraine. So if you don't if you don't support us, right? If you don't support us in our war that well quite frankly the EU of all places should be involved in. But if you don't support us in our war, then I guess all these refugees will just They'll have nowhere to go, and I, I, I just, I just won't be able to stop them from going into Europe. I mean, just, just refugees. They'll go where they want. Uh, so give me money. So and give me weapons. That 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 money you have in your pocket, give it to me. Uh, that chain your mom gave. Oh no 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 no, that's that's mine too. That watch, I'll take that too. I, I need that. I need that for the war effort. Don't look at the mansions I bought in Switzerland and Miami. Okay, I'm fighting a war for my survival, and you have to pay for it. Okay, and you need to be you need to be more accepting of that. I think, I think that we need to get our priorities in order. I think you need to get your stuff together and give it to me. You know, because I'm fighting your fight. Okay, I'm fighting Russia, and I need everything that I can get. That's basically what they're saying. <laughs> and you know what? It's a it's a problem of our own making, because. We didn't need to be involved in this. <clears throat> the EU, uh, I I can say that America doesn't need to be involved. I don't necessarily know if the EU didn't need to be involved. I can say that had we not been involved in how we left it alone, there wouldn't have been a war in Ukraine to begin with. So I suppose in that sense, they didn't necessarily need to be involved in this either. But here we are, 
we've given all this aid to, to Ukraine, and now Ukraine is blackmailing the EU and giving them more, which, quite frankly, I don't, I don't not endorse it. I mean, they, if anyone's gonna give more, it ain't gonna be me. So it may as well be the Europeans. I mean, again, we covered that that article last week from the Council of Foreign Relations, and. They compared the aid given to Ukraine country by country, the, and they downplayed the U.S. aid to $75 billion. And that's what really gets me. That's what really gets me. They, even when they downplayed the number to a third of, what it, of its actual total, they, the Europeans, all of NATO combined, still couldn't match what we give. It's crazy. It's crazy. Like, these guys are worthless. Why do I want to be in an alliance with these people? And why am I the bad guy for saying that it's a bad idea to be in a military alliance with people who have no military and no desire to have a military? Like, is that not common sense? Come on now. I don't care if you're the West and I'm the West and we're the West. You're worthless. <laughs> you, can't, you can't build tanks. You don't produce artillery shells. All of Europe combined is producing, what, four to 5,000 artillery shells a month? We produce 14,000 a month. The Russians are consuming uh, about 20,000 a day. 20,000 a day. I think I think the Russians are up to either 30 or 40,000 a month. But my goodness, this if this is our help, then I don't want it. That's just an insult. This entire continent which has a population more than double that of the United States, not even counting the Russians, the biggest and most populous country in Europe, who they, for whatever reason, pretend aren't Europeans. The Europeans really, really like pretending that Russia isn't a part of the West and isn't a part of Europe. But even if you don't count Russia, Europe has more than double our population, like two and a half times. They have an economy roughly equal in size to ours, whether that's in nominal or in purchasing power parity, is equal to or greater than, and they are worthless? You, you can put up less than a third of what we've given? Like, this is insane. I did the segment last week. Check that out. Uh, the the separate segment where I talk about that topic specifically should be up by now. I, I do that every uh, Wednesday. I have, those, I have those little segments released every Wednesday, so... If you just want to listen to a single topic from the episode that happens to interest you, they drop on Wednesday at around uh, 1 o'clock. So there you go. So you can listen to that one specifically. But my goodness, these are our allies. So in a way, I'm not even really upset that the Ukrainians are demanding more from them. I'm not. If anyone's going to give more, it should be the Europeans. This is their security environment, their neighborhood, their backyard. This is a conflict that concerns them, not us. We are thousands of miles away from the nearest point of Ukraine. 4,000 specifically. 4,000 miles from the United States to the nearest point in Ukraine. And then you have to go almost another uh, thousand miles <coughs> to get to the front line. Yeah, if anyone's going to give more, it should be them. And I knew the jig was up back when, what was it, March or April, when the Ukrainians came out saying, hey, we need more shells. And then they asked the EU specifically to give them like 250,000 shells a month. 
And then the EU said, hey, we promise that uh, sometime within the next 12 months, we're going to get you, we're going to get you a million shells. Okay. Hey, you don't even worry about, it. we're going to get you a million shells, but the Ukrainians were asking for 250,000 a month. So when, when you do the math, the Ukrainians were asking because 250,000 times four is a million shells and there are 12 months in a year. So the, the Ukrainians were asking for 3 million shells a year. The Europeans said, we'll give you 1 million shells for the year. And it, they didn't say they were going to produce the shells. They didn't say they were going to give them from their own stockpile. They said they were going to work to acquire the shells, meaning that they were going to acquire buy them from other countries. And that's what we ended up doing here in the United States. We got a half a million from South Korea. I knew the jig was up right then and there. The Europeans don't have the production. That, that, that's why they're that's why they're turning to other countries to supply these shells. And the United States has a little bit better production, but we're all out. That's why we turn to South Korea. Like it's really bad, really, really bad. But yeah, I, I don't blame the Ukrainians for asking for more, especially if they're going to ask for more from the right people, the Europeans. But the Ukrainians, Ever since that uh, that peace summit, well, uh, right. Well, I was I'm supposed to be talking about how there's a a split here, a split here, and I, I went off on a tangent about how the, <laughs> our allies are uh, in a bad way, and how they the Ukrainians are asking they're asking from the right people, they're just asking the wrong thing of the right people, because uh, they ain't got it. The Europeans do not have it, and that's probably one of the list of reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing now, because. We know that ever since the, that Mecca summit back in Arabia about a month ago, Ukraine has unequivocally rejected any idea of peace talks with Russia. And yet, we have Blinken saying that if Russia reaches out for peace, then Ukraine will accept. Now, that is a contradiction. The Ukrainians went out of their way to specify, and it's even circulating that they made laws saying that they couldn't negotiate with Russia. They've gone out of their way to say that they are no, that they're no longer open for peace talks. After putting on the charade of being open for peace talks for the entire war, the charade is gone. And I say the charade because they could have at any moment making peace with the Russians if they if they chose to do so, but they chose to take the money and the weapons from the West and now they're in this position. They didn't have to walk away from those draft treaties that they had initialed back in March of last year. They didn't have to do that. If they were really on board with peace, they they would have taken the deal that they had already initialed. If they were on board with peace, they would have taken the Minsk one or Minsk two. But let's just say that it, it took the Russian invasion. It, it took the Russians to to you know shake them up a little bit for them to come to their senses and come to Jesus. If they were on board with peace, they could have had it back in March when the Russians came in suing for peace. And they withdrew their troops from the north around Kiev as a part of, a, you know, a, a, me a goodwill measure for that peace deal that they were about to reach. This war could have been over and the Ukrainians could have chosen to go back to that at any moment in time. And they would have only lost Crimea and the Donbass, territories that they didn't have jurisdiction over anyway at that point in time. Now look at them. The, the, the charade. So that's why I say the charade is gone. 
because they they pretended to be making peace for eight years with Minsk too, while they were just arming and equipping for a war with Russia. And they, they were pretending to be in favor of peace this entire war since the Russian intervention back in 2022. They've been putting up the charade that they were open for peace talks when they were actually rejecting peace every opportunity they got. And it's not like we didn't play a role in getting them to sabotage that. I mean, we came in and specifically told them, hey, don't do that back in March. And then that's when the war continued. So now the charade is gone. Ever since the, the summit in Arabia, the charade has gone off. The mask has been taken off quite forcefully. And they've said, we're just not going to negotiate anymore. We're, well, we're just not going to negotiate, I say, anymore. We're just not going to negotiate. No more negotiations. We're not open for peace talks. We're just going to fight the war. So then Blinken coming out and saying that if Russia reaches out for peace, Ukraine is going to accept. Well, that's that doesn't go together. So why is he saying that after, after being their bitch for <laughs> a year and a half? Why is he saying this now? I don't, I don't believe for a second he's grown a spine, so how did we get here? I think that it's a sign that there is now a split, or at the very least, the script writers, as the, uh, Alex of the Duran would say, the script writers have determined that we're going to be doing a change of course, and it's time to start laying the groundwork for the new narrative, the uh, whatever that narrative takes shape in, whether Ukraine doesn't want to make peace and we've given, we've done all that we can for Ukraine, it's time to move on to the real enemy, China. That Something along those lines is what I feel is going to happen here. Uh, how they're going to thread the needle of not giving an inch to Putin and rewarding authoritarianism and being the, the, the mature and right thing to do after giving it our all, how they thread that needle, I don't know. I, I do not know. I won't even pretend to know. I can just sort of see that writing on the wall. But Blinken saying that if Russia reaches out for peace, Ukraine's going to accept. That's a massive divergence from we're going to support Ukraine from, for as long as it takes. We stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. That's a massive divergence. Because that's, first of all, that's not standing with Ukraine. And that's clearly putting a time frame up. If Russia reaches out, well, then Ukraine will accept. Well, okay, that's not as long as it takes. <laughs> Or, or maybe you can interpret that as it is as long as it takes as long as it takes for Russia to realize that they can't win and then they have to super peace. You could interpret it that way. But either way it goes, that's a pretty big break from the policy we've been pursuing for the last year and a half of Ukraine absolutism. Ukraine looks at and I'll just take a moment to point out how cowardly and immature it is to say it that way. Uh, where, it, oh, if Russia reaches out, then Ukraine will accept. I'm sure that they'll accept peace deals. Instead of just reaching out yourself and saying, hey, we're open to peace. We, the United States, are open to peace deals between Ukraine and Russia. And we're willing to offer up an end to Ukrainian aid if, they're un if Ukraine is unwilling to negotiate and get them both to the table. No preconditions. You know, the, the kind of leverage that we have but refuse to use, the kind of leverage that Trump openly threatens to use, and that I think he would use if the war was still going on at the time of him coming into power. I don't think the war is going to last long enough for that. I think he could end the war in maybe not a day, but, you know, he could have the peace talks going in 24 hours. I'll, I'll put it that way. So 
you could have that. This, this whole we're gonna, we're, we're just if Russia reaches out, then Ukraine will make peace. That's so cowardly. So, well, like I said, this guy doesn't have a spine, but it's a, it's a baby step in the right direction. All right, I'll give it that. I'll give it that. It's a baby step in the right direction. Unfortunately, it came out the mouth of the primary diplomat of the United States in a conflict where we have massive leverage by way of the fact that we've given $300 billion to Ukraine and that they don't, their war effort ceases to exist without our aid. Yeah. It's a shame the way it happened, but the fact that it did happen is, uh, it's a baby step in the right direction. And that's as much as Blinken is going to get out of me. <laughs> but as much as I can and probably will shit on Blinken for that, it, I, I have to recognize that it's in the right direction. But it also points to that divergence that I pointed out with Ukraine. Because for the first time, we see the U.S. openly stating aims that run contrary to those of Ukraine. Oh, if Russia reaches out, then Ukraine's going to accept. But the Ukrainians are saying that they're not going to accept peace unless they get everything that they want. So which one is it? Which one is it? Because you can't have both. Like, either you are or you aren't in favor of peace talks. So how, how, do, you, how do you get to this point? It's, it's an open contradiction. An open contradiction. And usually... At this point, someone who made a statement that ran contrary to what the Ukrainians wanted, they would have retracted their statements. They, the second Ukraine got upset, and I think of that one assistant, uh, who was it? He was either in the, the Security Council, the State Department, uh, the guy who first, you know, uh, the fir who first proposed the idea that Ukraine give up land in exchange for NATO membership in a negotiated settlement with Russia. And you remember, you remember how he immediately apologized like 24 hours later? That guy is sort of the example of how this usually goes. When we when we step out of line, the and Ukrainians get upset, and then they fall back into line as if we were not the ones who made Ukraine's existence possible instead of the other way around. We have all the leverage here, so it's just it's just so strange thinking about how we are the behavior of the U.S. government throughout this war, as though the Ukrainians were the superior in this relationship. But I, I digress. This is a major point of divergence from the stated aims of Ukraine and the stated positions of Ukraine. By now, someone would have retracted these statements, but instead we have Blinken not going back on them. And that is a significant, if in a minor way, uh, significant, but it's minor. It, 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 this is a war of contradictions, I tell you, especially when you're dealing with these people. But it, it's subtle. I'll say that. It's subtle, but it's meaningful. A divergence from what we usually get. But of course, stuff like this, even the baby steps in the right direction, never come by themselves. 
as this divergence has been happening, the hardliners on Ukraine have also been sort of deliberately undermining the idea of even doing that. So even that much is too much for some people. You have people like uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, saying that Russia has to remove all their troops from Ukraine first. Ukraine has to get all of its territory back first, and then we can have negotiations. But I asked this before, when that idea was first floated a few weeks ago, if they give back all the territory, what exactly are you going to be negotiating? You lost the war. So what exactly are you, are you going to be negotiating? What, they're just going to win the war, then give you back the territory, and then you're going to negotiate on equal terms? No, you lost. The negotiations are going to be from a point of weakness, abject weakness. You're not going to get all the territory back, and then you're going to negotiate for it? What do you... That'd be the Russians giving up their negotiating position. If they did that. So why would they do that? What, because it makes Ukraine feel bad? No. They, they did that before, and then they stabbed them in the back. Remember? They pulled their troops out of the north. And Ukraine stabbed them in the back by going back on their word going and turning their backs to that peace proposal that they had and that they had initialed. So why would, they, why would the Russians do this a second time when they know that the Ukrainians are duplicitous? <clears throat> They're not going to do that. They'd be silly to do that. So why would, why do we, uh, and I say we, why do these people <laughs> attach themselves to the idea that Ukraine's going to get all of its territory back before negotiations, especially when they know that Ukraine can't win militarily against Russia? How are you going to get the territory back? What you're going to, you're going to, you who have lost the war are going to make demands of the person who just beat the brakes off of you to give you what they stole. <laughs> It's like, it's like you get jumped in the hallway and your bully steals your shoes, your chain, your, your wallet. And then you, while you're still on the ground, make demands of him. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. That There's no logic in that. There's no common sense. And yet this is what are these... St- quote-unquote statesmen and diplomats are engaging in this absolutely childish view of international politics. And the people who get the shortest end of the stick are the Ukrainians. It's it's a spectacle. It is a spectacle. Uh, And it really does just point to the tragedy of Ukraine. But you can see... It to our by going back towards our overarching point of the divergence uh, between our policy towards Ukraine, uh, you have the divergence between people like Blinken in a subtle way saying that we're open to negotiations, and then people like Olaf Schultz saying you can't have negotiations until you give all the territory back. Well, that's now the narratives aren't even aligning with each other. The narratives aren't aligning not just between the U.S. and Ukraine, but between the Europeans and the U.S. 
there is a divergence, a multifaceted divergence going on. And it's not like it's purely the US and purely the EU. No. It's more of factions within the US and factions within the European, the European countries who are either more pro-Ukraine, pro-Russia war, or pro-Taiwan, pro-China war. That, those are the factions at play here. And the pro-China war factions are steadily gaining ground in the United States, whereas the pro-Russia war factions are still strong in Europe. And that's what this really is uh, sort of a demonstration of. Not that we're pro-peace at this moment in time, but that we're pro the other war. Whereas the Europeans, well, they don't want to be left to fight the Russians by themselves. So they're pro this war, and they want America to be in on this war too. They want America to be in on all of their wars, which is another reason why we should leave. Instead of being used as cannon fodder for their wars. But it's strange. It's strange to see the divergence but it is nice to see that the dog is starting to wag the tail and not the other way around and the u.s is the dog and ukraine is the tail the europeans are the tail <laughs> as well we were a two-tailed dog <clears throat> or uh, however many tails as we have allies but yeah so you have that you and uh i'm trying to find my name there we go you have that you have the hardliners who have also started to shift the goalposts and the hardliners being the, the Ukraine absolutists who wants to be with Ukraine to the bitter end. You know, that, that's what I'm talking about when I say the absolutists. These hardliners have also started to shift the goalposts again with regards to Ukraine's offensive. Because uh, after hyping up the counteroffensive and saying that they were they were going to cut through Russia's defenses and take back Crimea and split the Russian force in two and threaten them their logistics and force them to retreat. After telling us all of that and telling us that the offensive will, will take some time to achieve its goals when they have to downgrade it a little bit from lightning war to, oh, it's going it's to take some time. You have to, give it, you have to give them time. Now they're telling us that we need to prepare for a long war in Ukraine. Now, I could have sworn we were su supposed to be avoiding a long war in Ukraine. That, that's that's literally the title of that that what what that Rand Corporation article that came out around around this time last year, if I'm not mistaken. Literally, the title: "Avoiding a Long War in Ukraine." And yet, <coughs> here we are. But. You know, you know me, after observing this conflict uh, quite extensively, especially after the, the Russian intervention began in February 2022, and even a little bit before that, when it was still just the Donbass war, I couldn't help but ask the question, you, you know me and my, my dastardly thinking, all those, all those nasty little ideas I get in my head and those, those, those mean little questions that just won't leave me alone and won't let me appreciate the genius of my leaders. You know, I just, I just had to ask the question, you know, just, you know me, insolent little me, I just, I just had to ask the question, how exactly do they expect to fight a long war in Ukraine? Because this isn't some 
low intensity conflict in the Middle East or Vietnam. No, 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 no. This is th this isn't some counterinsurgency operation either. This is a high intensity modern industrial war of attrition. To even stay in the fight, you need all the tools of modern war, artillery, tanks, armored vehicles, you need men, preferably a lot of men. And then you need the fuel and the ammunition to make all those things work. Giving a rifle to some Ukrainian kid is not going to do much in the face of a Russian armored column. It's not going it's not enough to defeat Russian air power to give the to give those kids a a, a stinger. And it's certainly not enough to break through dug-in Russian defenses. And the Ukrainians are learning this the hard way as they're sending in their small infantry uh, formations, small unit infantry formations at these dug-in Russian defenses. And they have to be small so they can get through the minefields. But because they're small and they have no armor and no air cover, they get there and then they get blown the fuck out the water, figuratively speaking, because they're on land. There's no, there's no cover in terms of firepower and suppressing the enemy, the enemy being Russia for the Ukrainians. There's no suppression of enemy artillery or machine guns or air power. So as they're trying to clear these minefields and as they're trying to traverse the minefields, mind you, they're being shot at by machine guns. They're getting blown up by missiles and artillery. It's, they're trying now to do what is inevitably going to be the, the strategy of a of a, any insurgency, which is to just give them a rifle, give them an anti-tank gun, and lead them to their own devices to fight this. That's uh, the whole partisan war thing, which I think, which I think uh, that after this whole long war in Ukraine narrative falls apart, and it becomes clear that the Ukrainians can't fight the long war, that they're going to go back to the whole, the, the partisan war idea that was being uh, paraded. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you remember before the war began back in like December and January, there was talk of, oh, Russia might win the conventional war, but then they're going to have to deal with the partisan war where Ukrainian rebels in the cities and in the, the, the hills and the mountains are going to make it increasingly uh expensive too expensive for russia to continue occupying ukraine and then just like the u.s and afghanistan russia's gonna have to leave yeah i think that that idea that narrative is gonna come right back uh perhaps around this time next year we'll we'll, we'll see we'll, we will see uh but yeah that one's look out for that one i swear if i'm right on this i think i think i've cracked the code i think i've gotten uh, a good understanding of the script writers and how they think they're going to come back to that idea because they're desperate. <clears throat> the idea that they're even talking about committing to a long war in Ukraine when the war was supposed to be over by now with the sanctions, the war was supposed to be over by now with the counteroffensive, the war was supposed to be over by now when we supplied them with high Mars and modern tanks and all this modern superior Western equipment, the war was supposed to be over by now. Russia lost, remember? <laughs> Russia lost back in March. Millie, Millie told us that. Re remember? Russia lost. <laughs> and yet, here they are, 
talking about a long war. The divergence of the narratives is at play. The Ukraine absolutists want us to be all in on this war to the bitter end. And the China hawks want us out of this war so that we have the, uh, the, the spare brain capacity and spare bandwidth to commit to the Taiwan war. And we're starting to see that divergence realized in the mixed messaging that we're getting. This is the first time. We're going to start to see much more uh, China war drums being beaten, especially with the whole North Korea thing. That's going to be rolled into it. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for the the partisan war narrative coming back. But as of now, they're, they're talking about a long war in Ukraine. How are you going to do that? You, you're not going to beat an armored column with a, a, a rifleman. You're not going to beat a jet fighter with a rifleman. And you're not going to break through the dug-in Russian defenses. This is not some small occupational army that the Russians have sent in. This is hundreds of thousands of men across a front line, a consolidated line. There is no room for the insurgency. There is no room for an insurgency. And so the partisan war idea that they're going to jump to immediately is going to be gone. But they're talking about a long war. So I assume that they either want to freeze the conflict, that that stupid idea. They want to freeze the conflict. Or they think that they're just going to make it a permanent stalemate uh, by keeping the Russians from advancing uh, and switching to a purely defensive posture. Neither one of those are going to work. The, the, the freeze the conflict thing it would require a breakthrough in diplomacy that they are incapable of getting precisely because the Russians will never accept a frozen war in Ukraine. And even if they were willing to accept a frozen war in Ukraine, these people are not savvy enough to offer the Russians enough to incentivize them to take that deal. Because you, you see their proposals for peace in Ukraine. Ukraine gets everything it wants and the Russians get nothing. Well, even if the Russians were open to the idea of a frozen conflict in Ukraine, shoot, you're never going to hear them say yes to it with the way you're negotiating. These people don't know how to negotiate Jack Diddley or squat. I could get a better deal with the Russians than these people. It's crazy. <coughs> But they're, So they're not going to get a frozen war. The partisan war isn't going to happen. So all that leaves left for a long war in Ukraine is more of what we're getting right now. A stalemate, well, the, per, the perception of a stalemate anyway. But that's high-intensity war. We don't have the stock. That's high-intensity modern conflict. You're going to need those planes, tanks, armored vehicles, those artillery pieces. You need the men, the fuel, and the ammunition to do that. We don't have the stockpiles of these pieces of equipment. Not anymore. We've already given them away. We're out of 155 millimeter artillery shells. In a war where 70% of the casualties come from artillery, we're out of 155 millimeters. That's why we're sending them cluster munitions now. And those aren't going to last forever for the same reason. We're not producing enough to resupply them at the rate that they're using them. And we don't have enough in stock 
to keep this going for years and years and years. And if Ukraine has no artillery, how are they going to fight this long war? We don't have the production to resupply them. That's why South Korea had to bail us out with that shipment of half a million shells in order for this counteroffensive to even get off the ground. Because if you remember back in March, Ukraine was down to a thousand shells a day. And, and there are some reports now saying that they're down to a thousand to three thousand shells again. And this time there's no bailing them out because no one else has the shells. No one who's going to give it to them anyway. We don't have the production to resupply them. So when Ukraine runs out this time, and the, the Europeans aren't going to be very helpful in that regard either, and they never have been. So once Ukraine runs out this time, that's it. It's game over. There is no long war to be had. And there's and then there's no way that I'm the only one who can see it. See, you see, I could call these people slow, and they are. <laughs> But let's be real. There is literally no possible way that I, a singular nigga, on a podcast in a country of 300 million people, there is no way I'm the only one who sees this. They have to know that. And yet they go along with these fantasy land ideas that they, and anyone else who takes just 30 seconds to think about it, know aren't going to work. And then people eat this shit up. Like, I am, I'll take, as a side note, I'm just, I am so grateful for the sources of information that I have happened to stumble across throughout, over the course of this war that have been reliable and accurate or, and collectively have given me a very clearer picture of what's going on. Because without them, I'd, I'd be fucking lost. I'd just be absolutely lost. I'd be as lost <laughs> as the people that I see saying these blatantly untrue things about the war. People who will put, you know, little clown emojis whenever someone says that Russia's going to win or that Ukraine can't win. Those people, I'd be as lost. Actually, uh, I'll take that back. I don't know if I'd be as lost as them. But my golly, I, I'd be so far behind the curve that it wouldn't even be worth listening to me. So I'm, I'm just so thankful for my news sources like Jackson Hinkle, Jimmy Dore, the left lens with Denny Haifong, the Duran, Alex and Alexander of the Duran, Mag fucking Nificent, Scott Ritter, Douglas McGregor. So happy for these sources of info. So happy because a, a lot of people, a lot of the other sort of independent news, because that's where you got to go if you even want to be partially caught up on this in a real way. A, a, a lot of the other independent news sources are just they lag behind too far. Oh, and I, I should include Rogue News in this as well. They're great. But yeah, a lot of the other independent news, they, they, they lag behind because they, they still latch on to the, the mainstream narratives, which we all know aren't true. And the narrative itself lags behind the truth because they try to shape and manufacture things it's to contort to their narratives. They can't say one thing and then the next day come out, yeah, we were wrong. They don't do that. They don't do that. 
And they certainly don't do it over a big issue like the Ukraine war. So I, I just can't listen to a lot of the other sources that I get news from. Because they're on this issue, they're just too far behind the curve. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really thankful for my source of information. And I hope that I've been a, a decently reliable source of information for you guys. But it's there's no way that I and my sources, who I've just named, are the only ones who can see that these idiotic ideas can't work. How are you going to fight a long war with no ammunition? We, we won't even get into the, the, the hundreds of tanks and the thousand plus. I'm pretty sure it's over a thousand at this point. The thousand plus armored vehicles that have been destroyed in just this counteroffensive alone. Just this counteroffensive over the over the last three months. Not counting the, the hundreds of tanks and thousand plus armored vehicles that Ukraine had lost over the course of the war prior to this counteroffensive. The three million plus shells that we gave them that they ran out of prior to the counteroffensive. There's nothing left to give. We don't have the stockpiles to keep supplying them and we don't have the production to make up for what we've lost to give them more. So where's this this long war going to come from? It, it's fake. It literally can't happen. It literally cannot happen. Even if we gave Ukraine literally even if we gave Ukraine every single thing that we produced, all 14,000 shells, if we just lend leased them and set the bar to 100% like it was a Hearts of Iron game. We hit we hit the lend lease and go 100% of production instead of even bothering with the numbers. It's still not enough. 14,000 shells a month in US artillery production. That's less than 500 shells a day. And you're not going to go up very much with the European figures with their their grand total of 4,000 18,000 in 30 months. Uh 30 months or 30 days. It's still worthless. That's 6,000 for every 10 days. So that's 600 every day. <laughs> 600 shells a day is what our production levels could afford to give them if we gave them everything that we produced, we and the Europeans. 600 shells a day. That's worse than what they have now. Meanwhile, the Russians are putting up 20 to 40,000 shells a day. There's no comparison. You're going to lose. In an artillery war, if you're putting up 600 shells a day and the Russians are dropping 20,000 on your head, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. There's no way around that. It's just a, a feature, not a bug. You're, you lose. It's just a matter of when. So this long war idea is unrealistic. It's unrealistic. It's based in fantasy. There is no reality. There's, there's no way of conscruing reality to fit that fantasy either. There's just no logical way you can come to that conclusion that this that we're going to have a long war in Ukraine. That there's even going to be a long war for you to fight that you can gear up for. 
that's that's nonsensical and yet we these people are going along with nonsensical ideas and the tragedy of it all is that ukraine will be destroyed by this and the secondary tragedy is that people who know that they're being lied to by these people by these these habitual liars these pathological liars who they know are pathological liars on any other issue that they won't trust the mainstream media for they choose to trust them for the war and a lot of people and a lot of authoritative sources primarily in the independent news space are going to go along with this like i i had to stop watching kings and generals <laughs> uh specific their coverage of the war uh, I, I watch them anything else i i do like uh, i'm not dunking on other sources it's just I I can't watch them for news. They're too far behind. They'll catch up eventually, but it's at that point at that point you're talking a month plus after the fact and that's just not relevant if I'm going to be bringing you guys news. If I'm going to be informing my damn self, I it's just not worth. It. It's just not worth. It. Now granted I do have my lovely playlist where I I assemble all these terrible takes on the Ukraine war that I will indulge in when the war is over. But yeah, a long war in Ukraine, <laughs> whatever that's supposed to mean. <laughs> There's no long war in Ukraine. We don't have the production. We don't have the stockpiles and Ukraine doesn't have the men anymore. They're the, we talked about how they're openly discussing the final waves of mobilization one of which being every man and woman every able-bodied man and woman in the country are going to be sent to the front line when that's the level of conscription you've moved up to there is no long war for you to fight so not just from our end of this equation but from the ukrainian end there is not even a prospect of a long war Certainly not with the rates of loss that they're suffering. I mean, 80,000 plus in Bakhmut, 60,000 plus lo losses in just this offensive alone, 293,000 obituaries published, and that was what, a month ago now? So they're probably at 300,000 plus obituaries published. Half of their casualties are deaths. So obituaries, which we know for a fact are confirmed kills, so if you're at 300,000 obituaries, you're at 600,000 casualties. And you just lost another 60,000 men? My goodness. My goodness. There is no long war. So what are these people talking about? I don't know. M maybe you can figure it out. Maybe, But I can't. <laughs> I... I... Maybe, you know what, maybe this is just a, a, a shaping operation to get us to steadily, slowly accept the idea that Ukraine's not going to get the great, get, they're not going to get the great breakthrough, the big breakthrough, and then that's going to shift into, oh, it turns out Russia isn't actually collapsing, and then it's going to become, oh, the Russian, how did we get the Russian military wrong? Here's why Russia's military is stronger than experts believed at first. And then it's going to be, oops, Ukraine lost the war. 
because I honestly don't believe these people are that dumb to believe this. Maybe they are, and maybe even at this point, I'm still giving them too much credit. But, you know, when it comes to malice and uh, don't attribute to malice what can be accomplished with incompetence, well, I think they're both incompetent and malicious. Uh, but I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. There's no long war, but I guess that won't stop them from dreaming of a one. I guess that won't stop them. But now we will get into the final topic of today's episode. And this one is a lovely one. Uh, I actually came across it literally the day after I recorded last week's episode. So I'm very stoked. <coughs> Excuse me. Very stoked about this. Because this is huge. And what it is, is that we have found a massive deposit of lithium uh, somewhere along the state borders between Oregon and Nevada. And this one is estimated at a whopping 20 to 40 million metric tons. And depending on where on that spectrum it is, because these are the estimates, it might just be one of, one of, if not the largest deposit of lithium on Earth. Certainly, at least of the ones that we know of, it could be. But shoot, that's still pretty damn good. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll take it. We, we don't need the biggest. We will take it anyway. Like, because I remember back when the, the war in Afghanistan ended, and s suddenly, right after we left, you had these videos uh, talking about how Afghanistan was just so rich in rare earths, and how now that the United States is gone, China was going to come in and use those resources to rule the world, and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the, the obvious insinuation being that us being in Afghanistan was a good thing, because we were in control of those resources, and because we're, we were there, that meant that China couldn't control those resources, and that was, so there was, there was strategy in us being in a country that we had no business being in. And we we had control of those resources as if those were our resources to control. As if occupying other people's resources is a good reason for occupying their country. No, that's just you being an asshole. <laughs> but yeah, I remember seeing that come out. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I swear. We act like a child. Our foreign policy is like that of a child with a bucket of toys that we don't play with, but that we won't let anyone else play with. Except the catch here is that we're the one at the other kid's house and the bucket of toys belongs to them. And we still won't let them play with their own toys. That's our foreign policy as it stands right now we we can't let you have your re, uh, resources because we want to have the resources and we don't we we just don't want you to have them we're we're playing with them right now i mean look at us in syria right now where we're occupying a third of syria where they produce their food and they produce their oil where are we there oh we we can't let isis have control of the oil excuse me who cares <laughs> that's not your oil Maybe if you handed the territory over to the Syrian government, instead of trying to undermine them, you wouldn't have to deal with the power vacuum. Now you would you. Maybe, maybe ISIS wouldn't be your problem if you stopped, de stopped denying the Syrian government access to their resources. You know, j just a thought. But I, I couldn't stand that. 
it's so childish and unnecessary that it's childish and it's unnecessary because i man i don't know if you guys remember this or if you had these uh these encounters but i used to hate listening to people justify how we were fighting these wars in the middle east because of oil oh you want to play xbox you gotta go bomb that little iraqi kid for his oil i mean meanwhile we were sitting on one of the the most oil rich pieces of land in the whole world the whole world we have uh, we have enough oil to be the largest producer of oil on the planet bigger than saudi arabia bigger than russia we were and i think we still are by a much smaller margin though the biggest producer of oil on the planet we're not producing enough to be energy independent we're a massive consumer of oil mind you but the fact that our production is even able to get up that high says everything that needs to be said. We don't need their oil. If we can have a surplus in the millions, the millions of barrels of oil, <laughs> then we, <coughs> excuse me, then we do not need to be occupying Syria for its oil. We do not need to be occupying Iraq for its oil. We don't need to be bombing all these other countries for their oil. That's just stupid. And I, I hate the whole, oh, this country has oil, so the United States has a, is going to bomb them and fight a war. I hate that. Yeah, I hate that. And it's not even necessarily accurate. It's a secondary justification to keep us off their trail, which is that they just want to fight wars and launder money. And they use these secondary excuses to sort of justifying the minds of certain people oh why they're doing this so that, that we never catch on to what their true motives are which is just pure corruption they want to fight wars for the sake of fighting wars so they can launder money that's the purpose of the wars being forever wars so that you can launder money forever in foreign countries that you've destroyed so they can't investigate you and they can't fight you back it's perfect it's the perfect scheme that's what it's about it's not, it's not even about their oil which is why it's unnecessary. And it, it's, oh, it's so annoying. And I hate it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure you guys hate it too, but I just, it's one of those things that I really didn't like having to encounter, not just as a kid, but even now when people point out, oh, they, they, we wanted them for their oil. Okay, but we have our own oil. We have more oil. And yet we have these, these green agenda, ugh, keeping us from our own oil. So if, it, if it's really about the oil, then we would use our own, right? If it's really about the oil, then we would use our own. But it's not about the oil. It's just about keeping other people from having what they have and laundering money while you go. What is it, kleptocracy? It's something about a pathological greed of money and wanting to have things purely for the sake of having things even when you don't need them gluttony kleptocracy whatever you want to call it that, that's what this is that's what this is and that's how these people are and i can't stand it being implemented as a foreign policy just like i can't stand sanctions and we have this whole we have to occupy them for the resources and with the the latest obsession about rare earth and critical minerals for sort of high-tech devices we've started ogling places like Afghanistan and to a lesser degree Bolivia and Congo 
because of their mineral wealth and their rare earths. And we've sort of been fear mongering about how China is going to control all the rare earths and the lithium on the planet unless we control it first. And and you've seen similar arguments presented over other things and resources to justify the U.S. opposing a withdrawal from a region. Uh, oh, we can't leave because we'll give more influence to China and blah, blah, blah. All this old trash. Ooh. Just you wait till the second American Revolution comes through. Just you wait. <laughs> I'll be a free man. But, <laughs> but yeah, all these nonsensical, inaccurate, and unnecessary justifications for doing things that are themselves unjustifiable and unnecessary. And this discovery of this massive deposit of lithium is further proof of that. We don't need to control the world's resources. We don't need it. And while we're and while we're talking about the China controlling lithium and and China's going to be doing deals with Afghanistan and they're they're going to corner the market and they're going to do all this and uh, all, all this all this cowardly little uh, I I have so I have such an arsenal of insults that I would just want to hurl. <laughs> I can feel the toxicity within me just just rising up that I have to I have to keep back. <laughs> you know, like how Spider Man in a Spider Man Two, he's he's stopping the train and he's just stretching his arms out to keep the train from going out. The, that's me holding back the toxicity and all the hate in my heart. <laughs> but yeah, we we don't need it. You're talking about all this, all this stuff that China has. We don't need what China has. Well, we need we need productivity, we need manufacturing, but you're not going to take it from China and build in the United States. I, and that's another thing I can't stand where they talk about how oh this this industry moved out of China and they went to India. That's good for the United States. Uh, no, that's good for India. We gained literally nothing from that transaction. Where's your industry? Where are your jobs? Oh, you're content with them going to India. You're content with your job being in Taiwan. I swear, I swear. But yeah, we don't need other people's resources and we don't need to control other people's resources. We have literally everything right here. We have everything right here. We're talking about China controlling rare earths and lithium and how Afghanistan is just so resource rich and how U Ukraine has all these. And of course, when the Ukraine war first popped off, you suddenly get these infographic uh, uh, videos and I do love the Caspian Report. No, I'm not knocking on them, but I just find it very strange how right after the war you get a video. What right after the war starts, you get a video talking about how the mineral and energy resources of Ukraine, how they have uh, natural gas deposits off the coast, the Black Sea coast, and how they have rare earth in the the Carpathians in the western Ukraine. Oh, oh wow! It's it's almost as if we're making passively. I'm not going to accuse them of doing that, but if almost as if we're making a passive case for U.S. involvement in this war to secure these resources. And all the while, we've just been sitting on one of, if not the biggest deposit of lithium on the planet, tucked away in the Rocky Mountains, where there is undoubtedly even more riches yet to be found. If only, especially if we're only just now finding out about this gargantuan lithium deposit, what other resources do we not know about? What other resources are we not allowed to use that we haven't even found because we haven't bothered to look because we've been so focused on what everyone else has. We don't even realize that we're sitting on gold.
not just black gold, not just literal gold, not just platinum, but lithium, mineral wealth, agricultural wealth, freshwater wealth, arable land, mineral resources, energy resources of every kind. I'm pretty sure if we looked hard enough, we could even find uranium, massive supplies of uranium. If the Canadians have uranium, of course we have uranium. So why are we obsessing over what the world has when we have it all? Why are we obsessing over what China is and isn't going to control over there? They're not going to control the resources here. So what does it matter? It's so silly. Like every sign tells us that we really don't need to be involved in the world's affairs like that. We have everything that we could ever want right here in our own country. And there's just this refusal to acknowledge that for what it is, a gift from God. Because who else would have endowed you with something like this? Someone else would have said, you know what? I think we've given enough to this country. We're going to sprinkle these out around the rest of the world. You know, if it was a human, <laughs> If it was a human, we we would have we would have gotten guilty by now. We, you know, I I think we've given a, just a little bit too much to this patch of earth right here. You know, uh, especially when you look at a map and you see that China is the size of the United States. The United States takes up a third of North America, but China is like not even that much of Asia. I mean, Russia itself is damn near twice as big as we are. United States and Canada <laughs> combined is not even as large as the Soviet Union. I was like, this Asia is a huge place. And yet you're dropping off the tons upon tons upon tons of every resource known to man, mineral, agricultural, uh, energy, uh, water, uh, fresh water. It's like, goddamn. In this one comparatively small piece of land. I mean, America is a gargantuan place, don't get me wrong. But comparatively? It's a really huge concentration of huge amounts of resources and huge amounts of wealth and riches, the likes of which the rest of the world could only dream of. So why are we obsessing over what other people have and whether or not someone else is going to control what other people have when we don't need it? We don't need it. It's, it's both liberating to know and frustrating to know because you see how people try to get all worked up over who's going to control what. I remember that Adam Levine uh, little segment he did. I don't watch Adam Levine that much. I, I, again, I, I don't have issues with these people, but he was doing a segment where he was like, oh, we're, we're not prepared to fight a, a battle with China. And he goes off about how there's resources in the Congo and they controlled all this cobalt and the Chinese are going to control it. We used to control it. We should control it. It's like, okay, <laughs> you're completely glossing over the fact the that there's a oh wow my bluetooth device connected successfully but yeah you're just you're just going to gloss over the fact that there's a whole country that you're not accounting for in this equation the congo hello it's not china it's congo if congo wants to sell china congo's resources then that is up for congo to decide to do and guess what if you got a deal with congo then i'm sure they would give you the cobalt that the Chinese through the Belt and Road are going to help them to extract and produce. It's like, come on. We don't need to be. Today, I'm on into my two. What the hell? 39. Damn it. Apparently, someone else has uh, attached themselves to my Bluetooth. But yeah, 
We don't, <laughs> we don't need that. We do not need to control other people's resources. We have all this oil, enough to be the biggest producer of oil, even when a certain someone is deliberately fucking up our energy policy. And we're not energy independent anymore. We can be if we decided to be. We have one of, if not the largest deposits of lithium on the planet. We have all this arable land. Damn near every square inch of United States is arable. And I'm sure if we took the time to green the deserts, we could even turn the American Southwest into a vast breadbasket, an even bigger breadbasket than we already are. And then we have the Mississippi, a godsend. All this fresh water just coursing through the, the heart of America, literally the heartland. And you have this giant artery that is the Mississippi River. You have all the, we have all the iron, we have all, we have everything. We have everything. It's so it just, it's liberating to know. And then it's, it's mind bogglingly frustrating to see other people miss once you've seen it and once you appreciate it for what it is, the, the vast riches and wealth of the United States, it becomes mind bogglingly frustrating to see other people miss it and completely miss the plot and go on about how we have to control this or that around the world and how we can't let other countries do well because that would be bad for us. How? What, OPEC raising prices is bad for the United States? How? We produce oil. What, you, you think that it, they're going to hurt themselves because they produce oil? So if they're going to raise the price of oil, then that would mean that it hurts them. Oh, wait, they produce oil. So raising the price of oil benefits you when you produce more oil than you consume. That's called energy independence. None of this matters if we produce our own stuff. That's the solution. The solution is not war for Taiwan over their microchips. The solution is to produce it. And we have the lithium to do that. <laughs> we, have all, we have everything we need. We have everything. We don't need these people. We don't need the world. We have, <laughs> we have America. And that's all we need. That's all we need. Everything else you can do trade for. But self-sufficiency is not only a possibility in the United States, it's common sense. It's something that we should do. And we will benefit first and foremost, and then everyone else will benefit from doing trade with the United States. And then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that China has the Belt and Road. If we have a trade deal with all the Belt and Road signatories, we win. It doesn't matter if China has cornered the market in lithium and they start jacking up the prices artificially. Well, we have a massive supply of lithium in the United States. I guess our exports are going to benefit from that too. That's the power of producing your own stuff. And that's the power of being as energy rich as the United States. It is both liberating to know and mind-bogglingly frustrating to watch other people miss. But you know, you people take time to come around. People take time. But that is that is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed uh, the broadcast on today's geopolitical podcast. Uh, today's geopolitical podcast. I mean, my geopolitical podcast. Yeah, it's ours. You know, it's ours. But you know, I make and produce it. So, but you know, <laughs> thank you for listening to me rant. I'll just I'll just say that much. The the world is changing. New facts on the ground are being made as we speak. A new dam in Ethiopia, uh, peace in the Middle East, 
the grinding down of the Ukrainian manpower supply and a massive deposit of lithium in the United States. The world is quite literally changing in ways that a lot of people would not have expected just five, 10 years ago. But no matter how that world changes, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So until we meet again next Monday, servus. Thank you.